The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, welcome on to the and home portion of my home and home with Ben Taylor. We have a ton to talk about. Ben's Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, in my opinion, the best YouTube channel out there doing videos. We got a hit on his video on the new rules. We got a hit on his video on the Chicago Bulls. And of course, we have to discuss the Greatest Peaks series as well. So we should have plenty to get in here over the next hour. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I think we can fit this right in in like, what, 10 or 15 minutes. It doesn't sound like a lot to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, particularly the top 75 series. I, I, think, I think that's... It's uh, it's light content, yeah. It, it's a topic that's easily reducible, shall we say. Uh, of course. Uh, okay, so let's get started here. The You are someone who has focused so much on changes in style, changes in play over the course of the history of the NBA. And largely the trend has been since 2004, the combination of the new rules, more space, new rules in terms of hand checking, allowing more freedom of movement, rules allowing zone defense, both of those rules leading to it making more sense to play shooters. You can hide a little bit better on defense, but also will stretch the floor when with more zone concepts allowed and just overall an understanding that spread floor attacking the basket from the perimeter just works better than posting up every single possession with two big men on the floor. So that has led to a pretty much uninterrupted rise in offense through the 2021 season. But now it seems finally the pendulum has begun to swing back. Mm -hmm. Finally. Yeah. I, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that sometimes people don't realize offensive rating, offensive efficiency across the league uh, kind of peaked in the eighties for a while. And for most of these seasons, we found a balance between like 107 points per 100 and up to like 109. Um, and, we, and we were in there for many, many seasons. Of course, the what I call the dead ball era, the, this overly physical defensive grinding era of the late 90s and early 2000s took us down a little bit. And along with a slower pace, I think kind of caused the NBA to, to change the rules that they did or the, the points of emphasis. It was a similar kind of thing. This season reminds me a little of like 17 years ago, where in 2004, the perimeter players were really, really disrupted. Most perimeter players had down shooting seasons, um, down scoring seasons. And when they came back in 2005, their numbers started to go back up. We're, we're seeing kind of the inverse this year, where a lot of what has happened. So as I said, 107 to 110 in offensive rating. We were actually flying in that window for a number of years until very recently. And then things, I think, went a little bit too far, as you and I have discussed before. And the points of emphasis now are eliminating some of the tricks that perimeter players have used, small guards especially, but even just wings um, slashing and challenging big men that I think have made it very difficult for basically size to play well on defense. And if you take those tricks away, well, all of a sudden, like now it's really hard to finish among a bunch of seven footers. And maybe it's not that bad of an idea, Nate, for the Cleveland Cavaliers to play three seven footers anymore. <laughs> yeah, it is uh, nice to see a little bit more variety in style. Although I do think that the whole everyone plays the same thing is something that's been a little bit overblown. Uh, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there are teams that still would play differently. And you know, obviously a team like Denver plays totally differently, depending on what position your best player plays. And uh, teams definitely play a lot differently on defense, I would say, more than, than they might have before uh, with, with the zone rules allowed. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, 
I don't necessarily see anything inherently uh, good about having that kind of sweet spot offensive rating necessarily, but I did find it just aesthetically, the number of bullshit plays that were getting rewarded, I didn't care for that. And so if you're getting to this higher number of offense, because like some of the things that were making offense, I think were awesome, right? Like just bombing three pointers from way out and more spacing and just overall the skill level of the NBA being higher like those are all good things to me but you know you if you're knocking off a couple three points per game because guys aren't feeling a little contact and barfing up a shot that isn't a legitimate attempt to score and an attempt to draw a foul totally good with that not being there anymore yeah i talked about this a little last year with evan wash on a podcast uh the inherent number for me as well doesn't really matter i i do think it's sometimes if you go out of bounds and you kind of offend i mean i think it's hard for people to realize like the game was never called like this until very recently and so it becomes a weird thing for people who have been around the sport or around the league even internationally like you go to these other leagues and we saw it in fiba last year where these things just don't fly and everyone else kind of looks at you like what are you trying to do and i would say going through this video the thing that surprised me and really starting to like slow these plays down and watch as many foul, non-foul contact kind of plays as I could find, especially with high-profile guys, is we had the points of emphasis that the officials announced before the season. Well, now, uh, yeah, oh yeah, points of emphasis, yeah. Yeah, 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 points of emphasis. But the one that got me was how impactful, I think, the, the, as I'm on the move with the ball, somewhere between it almost always have to be inside the three-point line but somewhere between like 18 and six feet from the basket if i as an offensive player am moving really fast and i lean into you just a little bit then i throw myself off balance this is now a free throw and to me what i realized in going back through all of this is there's there's a twofold impact here one you don't get the free throws but two and i mentioned this with the lonzo ball video this week the defenders are no longer afraid to run with you anymore so it becomes it becomes normal defense again for the defenders and all the offensive wings and smalls who were relying on this i think that's kind of that's essentially if the officials are consistent and keep going that's that's essentially going to go away and they're going to have to go back to how do i figure out how to make a move to get my shot off or finish when i drive to the buck yeah to to beat your guy a, a little bit more and i think you know it is important to kind of note how we got here and it, that there is a little bit of this zero-sum game now between the idea of there shouldn't be that much contact on the perimeter and no you don't get a foul call for barfing it up a shot and so after 20 the 2017 playoffs when lou williams and james harden were on the same team that the most farcical series was houston against oklahoma city that where there were probably and that's even out at the three-point line too on some of those plays where you know you're probably getting three or four three-shot shooting fouls a game in that series from the feel some contact and barf up a shot move and but the way that all started is there's not supposed to be hand checking and so what guys would do is it wasn't even necessarily that they were leaning into the guy i think it evolved into that but what would happen is either going around a screen or if they were trying to drive they would feel a guy's forearm on them and then yep. react to that contact by barfing up a shot and barfing up the shot you know, they would be rewarded with a shooting foul but the other thing it did is the referees wouldn't necessarily call that illegal contact with a forearm or whatever which you're not supposed to be doing under since 2004 and then they really started emphasizing it uh, at the early part of the last decade the referees wouldn't call that until you barfed up the shot and basically forced them to make the call right because either you're going to essentially turn it over with this ridiculous shot that no one would ever take or have to acknowledge oh yeah the reason that this happened is because there was illegal contact so it was generally starting with what was illegal contact on the perimeter then they made a needed change in 2017 where they said okay this isn't going to be a shooting foul which was a really good change because clearly they were feeling the illegal contact first and then after that deciding to shoot it and so that's clearly not a shooting foul if the illegal contact happens first but that's kind of where we started here uh as far as you no know, like that putting your forearm on guys illegal contact and then what you saw coaches teaching guys is you mentioned the running alongside people basically what they started teaching guys was if you're running alongside someone you got to show your hands you got to just put your hands straight out and yeah you know it's a little difficult to run alongside someone with your arms just straight <laughs> out at your side and you that's know, that's how i run nate don't don't make fun of me <laughs> 
Yeah, because if you were, I mean, you are a little bit slightly beat at that point, but, you know, maybe you're not beat at an angle that's going to allow the guy to get all the way to the basket. You know, you're kind of beat at an angle that's going to allow the guy to get eight feet along the baseline to the side of the basket, but there's enough contact where a foul was being called. So I I agree, it needed to be changed, and I think they've done a very nice job so far of just recognizing that and implementing something. But my question is, are we going to get to a point or have we gotten to a point where now more legal contact is allowed on the perimeter and guys are getting away with that too much? So uh, this is my memory. And I went on a long time there, so just react to whatever part of that you'd like. No, no, no. That's, I mean, it picks up right where I wanted to go, which is my, my, my memory is starting to fade. But in 2005, in the ensuing years, was it that you literally couldn't use the arm bar so uh, as another thing i see a lot of people now calling what used to be the arm bar where you turn your hand around and just put your little forearm out to maintain contact they're calling that hand checking there's a whole history of actually back you know eras where you were allowed to put your palm on someone and what was happening was you were controlling them kind of like pushing off with your shoulder and your triceps as you controlled them so to mitigate that they said if you don't open hand you can turn your hand around because i think one thing a lot more in the post though the the idea that you can forearm guys in the post but if you put your palm on them then it's a foul i actually that one i remember that was the other way around so you could below it was either below the free throw line or below a certain point you could actually use your open hand in the back of someone and that's why i'm trying to make this distinction and i just unfortunately can't remember right now because this is it's 2021 and who could remember any things but (laughs) like the 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 key to me is always with basketball we talk about rules and changes over eras and things like that is that touching another player is inherently not a problem it's when you gain an advantage when you're when you're rerouting them or something that's what the league was trying to change back in 2004 and 2005 and so to answer your question I think we may be going too far now at the beginning of this because the refs are trying to adjust and stamp it out. I'm okay with that as long as it, you know, isn't in the game for like three straight years. Um, But the other thing that gets tricky is you go back. I loved your story about how we got here. If guys are just kind of putting their arm out to make contact and there's barely any rerouting of players, I, I don't see an issue with that either historically or in the spirit of the rules or whatever. And so that's where I get a little hazy where people, I've actually had people say like, well, that that should be a defensive foul, even though the player ended up hooking him because his arm was there. And historically, that really hasn't been the case. That's something that that came about recently where like you're still allowed to I think you're still allowed to literally touch a player. You just can't move them, reroute them, push them, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and it is, it's the most difficult thing, I think, to officiate, and not only to officiate, but just to come up with some rules with when the guy is like kind of beaten, but he's still running alongside him. He's not, the guy hasn't completely turned the corner. And you definitely can use your forearm in that situation just to kind of push him outside, make the arc of his circle a little bit wider, and now you can stay with him. You can get the inside track and it prevent him from turning the corner and getting all the way to the basket like that's that's definitely something that you can use your forearm for to gain what is probably and at least under the post 2004 rules supposed to be an illegal advantage now we can debate whether hey there's so much offense now that maybe that just shouldn't be illegal anymore and, and i think i would i might be okay with that you know and where it's unless you just like really shove the guy and you obviously have disrupted his uh rhythm uh balance i forget what what the the, yeah, uh, yeah. Four the acronym is there. Yeah. Speed, rhythm, quality. <laughs> Bal- I think that's it. So you're, you're close. Yeah, yeah but, it's, it's but- quality stuff. Like that. But uh, so... And then there's also the fact that if you're running alongside a guy to where the hell are you supposed to put your arm if you're not, if it's not in between your body and him, unless you're doing this ridiculous, like put your arms out at your side while you run thing, which you know coaches had to start to teach so the guys wouldn't pick up those falls. So I think we're pretty close to the right place right now. I'm just wondering if maybe it'll defenders will start to understand, you know, your PJ Tucker types are going to start to understand that, especially guys who are really strong, like back in the nineties that, Hey, if you try to drive i can just put my forearm on you and i'm so strong that you're just not gonna be able to get past me so i i worry that maybe we'll end up in a place where they got to be a little bit tougher on the hand checking again but the other problem too is just that they wouldn't see that hand checking until the shot was barfed up so maybe it's on the referees to just call that true hand checking foul without the ridiculous shot attempt having to happen do you 
Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us remember the play i had actually forgotten it and someone brought it up to my attention but you may remember given your your history of starting this podcast the game three series between the warriors and the clippers at the end of the game steph curry getting fouled by chris paul do you remember I, this play? i was there for that game yeah at the left elbow he kind of just got bumped enough they didn't actually call the foul they did not call the foul, and 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 you know when people watch it now, they say, oh, there was a foul on the shot where um, he kind of got clobbered in the midsection as he was shooting. But what what I you know I, again, this play was brought to my attention this week. I had forgotten about it, and what jumped out to me was he starts on the right side of the floor, drives toward the left elbow, and Paul. It's almost like a jujitsu match. Like he completely bodies him off with his arm and his body in a way that is kind of like the basketball I grew up playing in the '90s, where like if you tried to drive by someone who was bigger and stronger than you they just shoved you off your spot and it was jarring to watch seven or eight years later because that's the kind of thing that 
had been completely eliminated from the game in the last few seasons. And I think to your point, if we were to go back there, it might be too far. But Nate, I don't know how you feel about this. I also always just think there's an inherent thing in basketball where like if you're bigger, stronger, have broader shoulders, you have better balance, that's always been an advantage and it's always probably going to be an advantage. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, you know, unless you're Lou Williams and you, you're you just so fast and you can accentuate any kind of contact at all and get to the foul line. Um, so you got into this some in the video, but which specific players have you found to be most affected by these changes? Well, I think Harden is the one who kind of has the broadest bag of tricks that these are affecting. Um, and so to, to some degree, he becomes the, the poster child of it. But, you know, it was players like Lillard and Booker, who I highlighted in the video, that get back to that point about kind of falling over on contact on the move. And there are other players like that. Trey Young obviously has developed that reputation, I think, just because he's so light and frail. But all those guys, that, that kind of family of scorers, that's been you know taken out of their their toolkit it's no longer an option they can really go to consistently this season and as i said i think it's a double whammy where they don't get the free throws but defenders are also learning that they can kind of just prevent them from getting into that space the other big surprise to me was and i this like wasn't explicitly called out from what i recall but verticality's back like if you i guess it's i guess it's a cousin of you're not allowed to jump into the offensive the defensive player to initiate contact and get a foul so if you come flying down the lane they've been pretty good about letting defenders have an enormous amount of contact as long as they go vertical you know speaking of the warriors curry got a technical the other night because that play was officiated as a vertical play even though there was a massive amount of contact under the basket i think on on review I can't remember the defender right now, but he, he wasn't vertical. Who was it? It, it was uh, Terrence Mann. Although, yeah. th- th- we're not releasing this for a couple days, so, so don't don't date us here. <laughs> All right, I won't date us. That was that's, recently. That's okay. It was last month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but but it's that kind of play where when you watch it again, you go, oh, okay, I see why Curry was so upset. Mann was not vertical, but the officials have been much more lenient about allowing that kind of contact. And uh, again, I, for me, I feel like that's healthy. You get amazing vertical contests at the basket. And you really have to be a magician, like someone like John Morant, his finishing ability becomes more valuable. Um, So I think it's just been those kinds of players that have been adding a steady diet of those points and, and like incredibly high quality free throw attempts that are kind of whittling away. And one more thing, since I'm on a roll here, Nate, oh, I, yeah. you, you you asked me beforehand, I did look up the data and free throw attempts for smalls and wings, however you want to define them, point guards, shooting guards, uh, basically everybody that's not a big is down this year across the league. It's down by 0.4 free throw attempts per 100. And then big man free throws have actually gone up a little bit. So bigs with the way the game is being officiated, I, for whatever reason, th- this is allowing them to um, increase slightly the amount of contact that they're receiving and getting called for while the smalls kind of hurling their body around and falling all over are getting fewer calls on average across the league. Yeah, and that even that subtle shift it could mean that smalls don't have a, as much value. And I, I think we were we were getting to a point <clears throat> which was kind of interesting historically of just you know, and I think David Locke is someone who's talked about this too. Of hey, maybe just all you need is some kind of offensive engine on the perimeter who's pretty good, right? Like maybe Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker or Bradley Beal, maybe that level of player, not a guy that we would have considered to be a top ten player in the NBA. Maybe he could actually be your best offensive player on a really good or championship team just because it had gotten so easy for guys on the perimeter that even if you you don't have one of the absolute best guys, you know, as long as you have someone who can do these things and score and might be able to go off in a playoff series because maybe it's so easy to go off, maybe that could be enough uh, to build a championship team around if you have the other pieces like a a team like the Jazz has or, or like Phoenix has that maybe the difference between, you know, your 15th best offensive player and your absolute best offensive player maybe it wasn't as big as it had been in the past and maybe that was part partly due to the rules and it, it's interesting you know Mitchell Beal Booker actually has been coming on lately um but some of those guards Dame Lillard as you mentioned have been struggling Trey Young actually it hasn't really been too uh, he's been affected yeah. but he's been able to compensate it in some other ways but 
you know, he's probably a better passer than any of the guys that, that I mentioned as well. So it, it, it's just going to be fascinating to see. It's probably too early to make any sweeping conclusions, but these are some of the things to be watching for. Just, you know, are there just, are we going to shift back towards big men as being a little bit more valuable when they had kind of been de-emphasized a, a little bit in the previous 10 years? Well, the thing I love about it is I, I think it just forces more skill. So even with Harden, even with Harden the other night, I didn't know what year it was. He he dribbled into the paint, took two steps back, and took a pull up fadeaway from the elbow. I was yeah. like, is it is it 2015? Yeah, he, um, he's like he's forced to do more. And to his credit, I think he's starting to evolve into it. Like he's taken some, he's posting up some, he's taken some spot up threes now as well. Like, so he definitely has had to find some other ways uh, to exist here uh, offensively. And, and I don't think, I mean, again, this isn't a rule change really. It's it's points of emphasis and it is going to have and i think it is having um kind of a significant shift as we've been discussing but it's not a hugely radical thing where the top offensive players are suddenly not going to be able to make it in the league and someone like hart like they're all going to adjust in their own way but it's just going to push certain skills to the top uh, a little bit more and take certain skills um you know the guys who are benefiting from the older officiating style it'll just knock them down a little bit trey young is a great example i alluded to it in the video where they called him out um, along with Steph Curry in the tweets that the NBA officiating count yeah. sent out about jumping into players. And I don't know if I've even seen him try. Like, he just realized at the beginning of the season, he's like, all right, that's off the table. I'm just going to do other stuff. And when you're really skilled and you can still create advantages other ways, lo and behold, you can still do other stuff. Yeah, and I mean, the one, the one we used started alluding to a little bit, but the now that when you pump fake on the perimeter, the guy has to actually like land on you for you mm-hmm. to get a foul call like you you got to kind of stay inside the cone of your body of what would have been where you would have been had you attempted a normal shot uh to get that pump fake call DeRozan is still getting that uh be, and part of that I think is because guys are actually closer to him when he's doing his pump fake and the and he's in the mid-range and he's got that high release and jumps high and shoots over guys so they have to they feel like they have to kind of you know commit more and then he's also just not getting as much initial separation whereas uh, some of the guys where you know like Luca for example Luca stepping so far back on his step back where he gets enough separation to get the shot off and so he also could only create that contact on that play by really jumping forward into the guy which used to be legal so i i mean that's the other one that i really enjoy i mean i hated that one so much uh when guys are just like like you should be able to jump to contest the normal shot that the guy is going to take as a defender right like you calculate hey this is his shot this is where he would normally is going to shoot it this is where i'm going to land as long as he takes a normal shot i'm be fine and then for him to just jump forward into you now it just means that you you're completely deterred from te- uh from contesting what their normal shot would be because they have this option of just jumping straight forward into you and so now they also control the five feet in front of them and you just can't get any kind of a contest at all so it's great that they have eliminated that and i think that's another one where not only are you missing those points that you would get from the free throws but it's enabling guys to just get a better contest overall on shot i i feel like we tolerated too much for too long when you start when you start breaking out each play like this it it depresses me a little bit that we had this for so long um luca is another guy i mean i just haven't seen enough of him and i know every time i watch him i'm concerned about his conditioning and things like that and you got a coaching change but you know he's another guy obviously who like harden just he's such a masterful tricky player uh he's going to have to kind of adapt and move off some of those old tricks that that got him a ton of free throws that you know he's not getting as easily this year let me get one other larger point if i may derail us further oh yeah i'm i'm a guy like demar Derozan to me I'm always fascinated by the historical shift because the lower your league-wide efficiency drops, especially on half-court possessions, the better it is to have a mid-range guy who's hitting 45 or 50% of his shots, right? So he- here we have DeRozan, and I think there's other stuff going on in Chicago that I've mentioned with the teammates around him and things like that. But you have a guy that in an older era may have literally been a top 10 or 20 player with his skill set. And today, you know, you have rule changes like this. And we talked about earlier, you just need more skill. Well, hey, man, that like 45, 48 percent midi that he's got going on when you just clear out, let him go to work in his office. We saw this from a ton of stars in the 2000s, Kobe Bryant, Paul Pierce, Tracy McGrady, on and on and on. And 
it, this is the kind of thing that might make that style of play or a player like that more valuable. Yeah, particularly because it's just, that's not, so, we talked about this uh, earlier this week, John and I uh, on the NBA cast, that it's just not something that modern defenses are really built to defend as much, right? They, they are built to take away the three-pointer, defend, pick and roll, and to either take away the three-pointer off the pick and roll or to have your rotations and prevent something at the rim out of pick and roll. And so if guys can, they're designed to give up that shot. And if guys can make that, particularly in isolation, even more so than in pick and roll, it really messes up because, all right, are you, you're going to just run a straight double team at this guy in the mid range. Well, that's, that's not something that teams are used to rotating into as much as they used to be back in those uh, two decades ago. And so maybe that's something that coaches are going to have to teach more now if teams have a, that sort of player who can rise up the mid-range and that's a shot that you need to fear again i mean you know DeRozan in that game that we did john and i against charlotte he's 10 out of 13 from mid-range right i mean like that's yeah, you, yeah. you probably if he's gonna make that you know i mean you might say oh he's gonna regress to the mean you feel like you're getting a good contest you just gotta live with it but you know it, when you're in the midst of a game and your team's getting beat like that giving up over 70 percent shooting from mid-range for, to a guy like you feel like you have to adjust in some way yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's a very interesting. We'll see what happens, but um, I think it's the kind of it's the kind of direction that I don't know. It has me excited. So anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets. From there as well, I felt really good about having them be the outfit of my wedding because all of my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns you can customize. Things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets. And you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. So since you brought up the Bulls, I wanted to talk about the video that you did on uh, Alex Crusoe and Lonzo Ball's defense. Uh, you focused on a game against uh, the Magic in which they were uh, absolute wrecking balls. And the a question that I, John and I got on the cast was, how valuable can guard defense be? How valuable are guard defenders? Can you make a good defense? This wasn't in the question, but I, I'm extrapolating here. Can you make a good defense based on great guard defenders? Do you, do you think, and and this plays into our discussion about the rules too, or maybe it's now that type of perimeter defense can be more valuable again. Uh, what do you think on that? How much time do we have, Nate? <laughs> you we, know, we, got a, we got about uh, about 25 minutes. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's the it's the kind of thing where it's such a broad question in the sense that I, I've over the years tried to go back and like study what makes successful defenses and coaching and philosophy is a big thing for all five guys on the court. And then all five guys on the court impact each other in a different way than the offensive players. You've talked extensively about how, you know, on offense, you can hide your weakest guy in the corner. But on defense, he's a he's a shining light that's going to get attacked. Yeah. So so I think it starts with coaching philosophy. I think it moves down to the five players as a unit with their effort implementing that philosophy. And then then I kind of get into like individual stars and building blocks. I, I did a podcast a couple of years ago on. Are there any defenses in history? Like, how good are the best defenses in history without a superstar big man defender? Hmm. And you can you can get pretty good, um, you know, but all of them kind of had utility, decent bigs involved. And I think Chicago specifically with Vooch, you know, is is he too? I think he's probably too weak in terms of the skill set for the game today. In other words, 
I would describe him as just basically a, a, a drop big um, who isn't yeah. particularly. Yeah, you want to you want to jump in on how well, to. Well, how I, to... I was just going to say that he's been better than his reputation protecting the rim. I think the last the last couple of years, and particular particularly this year, I, I think he's he's done a reasonable job when he's in position. Uh, now he still is slow for sure, and you know he really struggled with pick and pop bigs, and, and uh, you know he, I wouldn't say he's like a huge asset there, and he might get attacked more in the playoffs, but he is he's capable of doing some things, hanging out around the rim and, and deterring some misses if he's there. Well, also having guys that are this good at going through screens they just refuse to be screened uh, i think stacy king said it in a game recently he's like the guys who used to be here accepted being screened and when you have a drop big like that in that situation you know such a key to that coverage is how you push the ball around the screen or even pursue it if, if it gets around the screen and you're in trail and th- that has helped their skill set their speed their screen navigation their ability to sit in the paint and help like their their stunts and kind of yeah. digs they are so good um both physically in terms of their quickness in their hands but also in their mind understanding the timing understanding when to go and recover uh, i had a play in there on julius randall where lonzo lonzo sends his he says i'm gonna stay at the nail someone get someone cover the weak side we've got that coverage locked up caruso is six four he's guarding julius randall and lonzo's just waiting for him to put it on the floor and make his move time the stunt disrupts the whole play all of this skill set i think helps someone like vooch but full circle can you get like a top three or top five defense in today's game i I still think you need cop competent kind of big men or guys playing the four and the five who are still a little bit more defensively inclined or give you some rim protection or whatever it is to really round it out but can you can you be like a top 10 defense with this type of setup i I think so yeah definitely yeah and they don't in some of their big lineups that they don't or or some of their most used lineups i should say they don't necessarily have the wing stopper either you know javante green Derek jones jr like those guys play a a little bit more maybe they fall into that category but their closing lineup is probably going to be zach levine at the three Rosen at the four and Vooch at the five that's not a, a group you would normally think of that can defend and when I was asked uh, about this question of how much can guard defense help if you have just one guy I don't think that that's really yeah yeah is really that great right because you just especially now with small small pick and rolls you can get the matchup that you want if you're really trying to be serious about it and approaching it in the right way now if you get those two guys and then maybe you get someone like Green out there or someone like Jones out there and you you get a third guy, guys who just are able to create that shell, right? That, that's the famous drill, the shell drill. They Their shell is so good where even if they get an ISO against DeRozan or Levine, who actually has been much better these last couple of years, particularly this year than he was previously. Uh, and then, yeah, it's just that help at the nail. They just have such a great understanding for, okay, once the guy kind of puts his head down, I know even if I'm guarding a great shooter that's one pass away, I can go and I can go stick my head in and get a steal here if the guy's turned his back or I know that I can get to this spot and kind of fake towards him and still be able to get back to my man if I need to like the short area quickness of Caruso and Lonzo is incredible and so yeah I think once you can put multiple guys like that together and you can have one on ball and then you have another one who's a really good help defender as well that's when it can start to really add up when you can put it throughout your team if you only have one of those guys it's okay you're gonna put him on the best guy and then he'll get screened off and then you know it's just not really going to work that way and in a way you're describing the building blocks of defense you know if you have one rudy gobert okay then you just funnel everything into the paint but for other spots on the floor like start with a perimeter guy having a second one where you can switch what the you know switch likes right so that just means we're similar size we're similar defenders so caruso and lonzo can just swap literally between point guards and big men in a pick and roll they can swap when the small sets the screen in the pick and roll Okay, now what else? Let me get a weak side guy. If I add a a rim protector or a really good weak side defender who understands responsibility and positioning and can be early, now I've got two guys on the strong side on the ball and screen navigating really well. I've got a third guy to start shoring up the weak side. You can start to see how you go from a top 15 defense to a top 10 defense to a top 5 defense, especially when you commit and you're on the same page. Yeah, one thing that I, if I had access to the tracking data that I would have loved to see is just how much is even getting through one on-ball screen worth in, for your defense on that possession, right? I mean, my guess would be even if you can do that 10% more 
of the time than an average person can that that really just helps your defensive efficiency just to say oh uh, now we didn't get him now we got a rescreen maybe what we we were we had a this setup where the guy was going to come off the pick and roll and then uh, the play was predicated on maybe forcing some help and then we have a screen on the weak side and it's all supposed to run it in concert but instead the guy got over the screen and so we're we we got a rescreen and so the timing of everything that we're doing is off you know particularly for teams that don't have that one great ball handler like okay if it's chris paul you get through one screen on him well he's just going to keep dribbling it and he'll get you again or john Morant. but if it's a team that's kind of doesn't have that one guy where they're just going to have him dribble 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 and run a pick run pick and rolls until he's open it's really really effective and then also when you're doing small small actions usually those guys will just slip out of the screens and just the fact that there's a guy kind of near him is enough to let the guy turn the corner that's not going to happen with alex crusoe alex crusoe unless you actually lay the wood on him he's mm-hmm. just going to stay attached to his guy he's not going to get distracted by oh this guy's here he might set a screen oh he's slipping out oh i turn my head and now the guy's going by me yeah and that small small pick and roll it's something that i see constantly on film where smaller players they're not used to handling what is essentially the role man responsibility part of that coverage so whether that's communicating the coverage that they want as the screen is being set or dealing with something like a slip it becomes much harder but when you have guys that are used to just guarding all kinds of positions and playing either of those responsibilities in the screen along with the teammate who's going to get through the screen so you you kind of un, you can trust and understand hey I don't need to overcommit or overhelp which is another huge defensive principle that you know differentiates decent from great defenders like it all starts to work together synergistically and yeah it, it, it rolls. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I mean, the Bulls are going to be a fascinating team going forward to see whether uh, offenses and defenses can figure them out because they do have guys who have very discernible strengths and weaknesses, and particularly in the playoffs where I expect to see them. Now, I wouldn't have said that at, at the start of the year, mm-hmm. what, what they look like. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your greatest peak series here? We got a, another probably 15 minutes or so, so obviously uh, that should be plenty of time to, to <laughs> discuss it. But um, let me just just ask you this in terms of the feedback that you've gotten and obviously if you haven't watched it yet you absolutely need to it's you know one of the best pieces of, of nba media just especially for the old guys in terms of just the, the film work that you did and were able to dig up on so, some of these guys from the late 70s and the 80s um but what, what has been some of the most consistent feedback you've gotten in terms of the rankings of what people agreed with or disagreed with or maybe uh for guys where they were like oh i didn't actually realize that he was this good and you kind of convinced people on it well, the, the feedback generally has been pretty amazing. Um, so I thank everyone for that. There, I, like, Let's just start with some of the guys who I think were unexpected for people. Bill Walton, you know, lead, leading with Bill Walton was kind of a, a deliberate choice um, in terms of threading larger themes through history. And I think there were a lot of people who knew his name and like maybe knew he won an MVP and he's a broadcaster and everything. But that was one thing right out of the gate where people were like, oh, I didn't. I didn't realize what the hype was about. And then I didn't realize that a white center could be one of the best defensive players ever. Yeah. Yeah. And and, well, (laughs) the other thing about him, and I I feel like I I felt this way when I was really young and saw a handful of old grainy clips, like he, he doesn't move in a way that evokes the same kind of like dominant center athleticism that we think of today. Uh, You actually have to start realizing like, Oh, Oh my God, his motor, you know, it's when you watch an entire Bill Walton, possession um the bill walton clip i saw the most as a kid which was on an nba tv commercial was julius irving yamming right on his head in the middle of the fight you know like that one got played over and over and over again but you don't realize walton's motor activity size i mean he was like did not want to be apparently listed in the seven foot club he's one of these guys but you see pictures of him next he's huge um and so all of that in that era just made him an incredible presence at the rim. Uh, his yeah. passing, which is a totally different type of passing than we see today. But uh, God, these little short interior cutter, quick hitter, like all of that was so good. So I think that was the first one on that front. And then very similarly. Oh, well, and, and, and quickly on Walton, uh, has anyone ever shot a jumper with his elbows closer <laughs> together than Bill Walton? That's one where when people go the other way on Walton, they're like, come on, he's he's not going to be able to extend his, his range. His jumper was wonky. That's why his free throws weren't fantastic. And I think that's all true. Like that was back in the day where everyone had their own shot style in the same way that baseball players have their own batting stances. Oh, 
Nate, do baseball players still have their own batting stances? I don't watch baseball anymore. Is that not I a don't thing see either? Any Andre Dawson's out there or Julio <sighs> Franco's out there anymore. So this I mean, is I, depressing. I don't watch baseball either. But no, it's it's true, right? I mean, you you had guys who would just take some of these uh, complete, just completely ridiculous shoot. You know, Jamal Wilkes, so, you know, who was actually a very very effective shooter. But yeah, a lot of guys, I guess, were just kind of self taught. You know, you didn't have. I, I mean, I think that's the proliferation of YouTube and skills videos and all that. I mean, there still are guys who have funky shots and you know you can still tell guys some guys are different and some guys have classic form and all that but yeah it's just it's definitely nowhere near as weird as it used to be if you watch like a a a game from the 70s and 80s and some of these shots you're just like how did this guy you know ever make it past 10 years old with this thing yeah but it's kind of amazing to watch now at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So, um, the the other one along that same sort of um, family of feedback was David Robinson, where I don't think people realize, like, I think people were surprised he was included. But afterwards, I've I've heard people say, like, wow, I did not realize David Robinson is of this caliber. And in their head, they're saying things like, is, is this guy the most underrated player ever? Like, he's what what a ridiculous talent, what an athlete. And I think for him, it's an easier sell, probably, because he looks like an Adonis. He was this crazy athlete. And he played in a time with so like he spanned you know he's got that he's got that great international game in the 80s against Arvita Sabonis where you know I think that was 86 and Michael Jordan at that point was in his third year and Magic and Bird were running the league and then he plays in the 90s he goes up against all these guys he goes up against Olajuwon he goes up against the Bulls and then by the time he gets out of the league you've got Kobe and Shaq and the next generation of players so I think it's an easier sell for him Uh, but those like that that is all maybe a theme as well the number of big men who were just phenomenal in the last 30 or 40 years well, and I mean, so some of your, and I, the one, probably the one that I think was most surprising to me when I first read your top 40 series, and that's a, a different exercise. That's not ranking greatest peaks, but obviously there's going to be a correlation between overall career value and uh, greatest peaks. Akeem Olajuwon, fourth greatest peak of all time. I think that would really surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think in the in the sort of hardcore historical community, I mean, at the worst, I think people talk about him as a top 10 guy. Um, and well, so, sorry, sorry. Some of us just aren't in the hardcore historical <laughs> community. So wait, they, well, you're do, gonna do you have to deal? You're going to have to deal with the rest of us plebs here. No, do you not who, think that way about is, him? Who is in who else is in the hardcore historical community, by the way? Is there who else's work should I be? Should I be reading? That's uh, that's a that's a list. It's like a it's like a club. It's like getting into the club. Someone has a list. And it's kept in secret somewhere. Um, no, there are there are plenty of people who I think go through uh, all the all the real GM projects that like spend nine months going through history. You, you read those or you participate in those, and regardless of how you feel about specific players at the end, you will learn things both anecdotally, statistically, legally. Like you'll learn things that you never knew. Um, and and legally, yeah, you know, like like. Legal things, like what happened with you know players who were blackballed from the league, or okay, uh, okay. you know oh, yeah. arbit- right. arbitration right. that kept you know what happened to Connie Hawkins. We could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, um, like, I was like, uh, did you know that Akeem's uh, housekeeper sued him in, uh, in in 1994 for unpaid wages or something? Like, I, that uh, threw off the entire set. No, no, but Hakeem's 1992 uh, is a great example where he was underwater with the Rockets. Um, but I think there was this perception in the 80s when he came on that he and Ralph Sampson were going to dominate. And when that dissipates, you lose that narrative edge in the way basketball storytelling works is like you just get cast off to the side. And then and- 87 to like 93 for Akeem is just a complete wasteland. Into I think and even at the time, I think people are just like, all right, you know, this is like an all star center. You know, he's decent all star. Like, I don't think people understand his team is going 500. 
500 or like barely making the playoffs a lot of those years people i think didn't understand how terrible his supporting cast was as that 86 team collapsed and just how good a job he was doing to even get them to that level you know same thing as like for example some of those kobe seasons uh the uh, 05 06 07 you know, he's a, a, kind of a similar performance to that where they just didn't have anyone around him and you know he wasn't able to impact deep into the playoffs but still was playing at an unbelievable level yeah and he was in houston instead of los angeles or new york um and he was at a time where it might be uh something that would be more well received today but i mean having this like foreign african name um you know just he just wasn't i i alluded to this in david robinson's video like we forget david robinson was the media darling he was like the face you know this is going to be the next face of the league it was a commercial delight in the early 90s uh, and that kind of changed a little bit after Akeem, you know, Robinson peaked, he won a scoring title, he won MVP, and then they had this showdown, Akeem took him down, quote unquote, uh, and then Michael Jordan returned, and that was that was the end of that. And maybe to some degree for, for fans and for sort of historical legacy, that was the end of that for both of these guys. But I think when you go back and look at their body of work, now, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I did include at the end of the very last video in the series, the subscriber rankings. I had my subscriber yeah, I, I rewatched it. I remember that. Yeah. Okay. And I and I tend to think that a group like that, um, whatever whatever biases they may have by by being selected to be my subscribers, if you will, I tend to think if I give them as much knowledge as I can give them and what I try to have in my head and I give it to them, that group is going to come up with a quote unquote better or more accurate list, a wisdom of the crowds kind of list. And I this is your Patreon subscriber. Yeah, yeah. The, we had a few hundred voters, which was really cool. So, so um, the 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 craziest of the crazy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So even, cra- even crazier than dunked on prime subscribers. I, I think so. Yeah, it's, it, it gets pretty hardcore over there. Um, so I can't remember where they had Akeem, but he might. I believe he was. He was. He was lower than fourth. I remember that because I think. They had Kareem up in fourth. Yeah. yeah. But, he, but he was high. I remember that, too. I was like, well, you, you really have brainwashed these people. <laughs> <laughs> on, on on which front? Which player? Yeah. Now, now and, and I, I kid there. I mean, I, I you've convinced me quite a bit on, on Kareem. I think probably the two, or, or, or not Kareem, Akeem, probably the two people you've most convinced me on, I would say, were Wilt with your, your uh, back picks top 40, where I just, oh, yeah, no, it actually didn't really mean anything that he was averaging 50 points a game. Like, he actually wasn't driving efficient offense outside of himself and he was actually really good on defense like those are things that i didn't didn't really understand about will totally changed my perception of him and then akeem is the other one where i'm like oh yeah this guy is clearly a top 10 player of all time was something that i probably didn't realize until seeing a lot of your which which is original work too i mean i just didn't necessarily have access to some of the statistical work that, that you've done um and so that's part of why i was convinced by it yeah i mean just on wilt you know a huge thing for me it started uh 2010 yeah. he did a project he was the first guy that you did in in your top 40 series right he was yeah and he was i did him as kind of a, a test pilot i actually started that i think I, we talked about this um when we did a podcast on that years ago i started that like thir- 12 or 13 months before i ended up releasing the series i just had this idea of kind of collecting this new historical information that had been unearthed about these old guys and whatever film and footage we could get from youtube and trying to get that in one place and i said wilt Wilt to me is like a seminal figure for a lot of ideas in basketball history. Sometimes um, Wilt supporters think I'm too hard on him because of that. Hakeem and Wilt are actually really similar in their functional style, like big man, great defenders, not killing you with their passing, big scoring. Now, Wilt later in his career switched to more of a passer, but that came at the expense of his scoring, which is, again, what makes Wilt such a fascinating player to talk about from the time he came into the league to the time he left the league. But yeah, Nate, to your point, like that all started for me probably 11 years ago, going back and um, getting older access to older data, both through newspaper clippings was the first thing we did. And then the second thing was, hey, I figured out you can actually estimate offensive ratings pretty close to what we have 
after 1974. And when you did that, all of a sudden you realize like, oh, wait, it make it makes sense. This guy taking 40 shots a game and averaging two assists is floor raising the offense. The, this, these weren't great offenses. These were kind of like defensive teams that he was doing a bunch of heavy lifting. But how much does that heavy lifting actually work when you have other players? And that ended up being Hal Greer and Chet Walker and other players in Philadelphia. And he goes to Philadelphia and his coach is like, you know, what would be much better. I know you average 50 points a game, but it would be much better if you didn't shoot 40 times a game. And I think that's one of the, the seminal lessons in basketball history. Yeah. Well, and I think also the key point that you made is if he shot 40 times a game but he also set up his teammates a, a bunch which right. admittedly that was harder to do at that at that time in NBA history that sort of offensive engine but basically the problem with Wilt was he couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time like he either would be in score mode on a possession or he'd be in pass mode and he couldn't try to score read the defense see that they're coming over and then set up his teammates a, on a play he would either be you know everyone's gonna run around me and I'm gonna pass from the elbow but not really threaten the defense at all or he would just try and score. It wasn't the same fluidity that we see today. It, it yeah. wasn't the same, you know, um, I have the ball. If I'm Jokic, I, maybe I haven't started dribbling. If I'm John Morant, I started dribbling. And I am looking at any given second for an easy opportunity to score and make a move. Or the second the defense responds to that, pass and hit an open man. It, it it wasn't that same level of fluidity. I think for that era, a guy like Oscar Robertson was sort of the the hallmark of that approach, and Jerry West had it a little. And that was another big thing for me going back. Like, I wanted to include these guys in Greatest Peaks. We just don't have enough footage. We don't have the same level of information and data about them. But West and Robertson, I think they're pretty clearly the best players on offense of that decade. And yeah. yet, of course, when I was growing up, it was Wilt because he had all the scoring records. Yeah. And I mean, and even because when you go to like first level advanced stats, you're like, hey, this guy's not only is he scoring 50 points a game in 1962, but he's, you know, true shooting percentage, like seven it's, points above yep. the league average or something yep. like that. You're like, how could he not be just this unbelievable force? But then when you look at, at the team performance, it, it's not there as much. So I want to close on this here. The NBA recently came out with their top 75 list. I haven't had a chance at some point, I imagine I will, to really go through it and determine through my methods, like who who the biggest snubs were, who's on who's on there, who shouldn't be. Rather than say who's on there, who shouldn't be, who is the one guy didn't make that list that you felt was most deserving beyond? Oh, um, it's, it's hard because the criteria is so fluid. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think from the way it looks, you think, how did Dwight Howard not make it? But I, I did a whole podcast going through this and my list and guys who I think are snubs. Uh, to me, the biggest snub was not, not, um, celebrating or acknowledging the modern guys from the last 25 years yeah. and, and auto filling the old players. So you've got Dave Bing on there. You've got Lenny Wilkins on there. Like what, Jer what that Jerry Lucas. Yeah. What Dave that Busher. What that ended of oh, the entire seventies Knicks. So you end up with this insane thing where the entire seventies Knicks five starters or players on the early seventies Knicks are on the greatest, you know, 75th anniversary team. But the Spurs dynasty has one dude. The Warriors dynasty has one and a half dudes. Well, you know, Durant was there for a little bit. And it, no international players from this huge wave of the last 25 years, your your Pau Gasols, your Manu Ginobili's, all these guys are missing. That, to me, was the biggest kind of snub, if you will. Yeah, just uh, overall, yeah. And it's you're also, I guess, even though we're, I think part of the problem, too, is at 75, you know, to have the last 25 years at, after 50, you still kind of have more players than 25 years worth of players in, in some respects because they're guys who haven't finished their career right yeah right? like like luca or Jokic or those guys, they're already in the league um you know even someone like draymond green or clay thompson like their their careers are not over yet they're kind of getting into be post prime but you know if draymond green wins defensive player of the year this year uh, again you know i mean that he's in the league now but he you know hasn't had a chance to put the, that resume up but no i mean I, it definitely it, it seemed clear to me that it wasn't you know the most rigorous process in the world they did have this star-studded panel but then i've seen the athletics list and 
And hmm. so far, I think the athletics list is even worse than the NBA's list. It's so it's, I, it's yeah. hard. This is this is gets gets back to our hard. What we call them earlier, the hardcore historical community. I, I mean, it's really yeah, you're, you just it's impossible to ask someone, even someone who is there, to put in the amount of time that it would take a, on a project like this to really do it right. I mean, it's, it's a you know you this greatest peak series that you did was like your full time job for to do twenty five players for a year. Basically. Yeah, and even even the. 75th anniversary ballot that I put together for that podcast I did recently um, thinking basketball podcast like that took me on and off three (laughs) weeks and at some point I was like I'm never I'm uncomfortable with this I'm never going to get it right and I've been doing you know pretty diligent historical work for over a decade and I've, I've heard voters be like you know I took a long time on my ballot it took me three hours and I'm like that that that's the thing it's 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 not an inherent problem with the voter or their perspective or their knowledge or anything. It's just, it's such a broad task now. 25 is manageable. 50 felt manageable because we kind of didn't care that much about the first 10 years. But when you get to 75, it's such an unruly beast that you really, really need not only the perspective of history, but you need to think about what it means to make a list like this, what you value and what trade-offs you're making when you put players on and you put players off. Yeah, I think actually what the way I might do it if I find the time to go through and do it is just try to rank the top 10 players in the NBA every year. Yeah, you know, obviously that's going to be very rough, and then to just try to kind of add up those the shares in some way of just because like you know someone someone who like DeBusher was DeBusher ever a top ten player in the NBA? Like to me, if you're not, you never had an argument to be a top ten player in the NBA. You probably shouldn't be on that list, right? Or you know, or at least I'm going to make sure that everyone who was at that point for a sustained period of time is on there, and then we'll get to some of these other dudes. Um, you know, if, if we run out. But all right, we speaking of running out, we are running out of time here. Got to get going. We'd love to have you on again for you know uh 10 to 15 more podcasts to discuss <laughs> well we'll do it again to be continued <laughs> all right but obviously the thinking basketball youtube channel and uh ben's patreon as well are must subscribes and uh we will talk to you all again soon thanks for being a subscriber to dunked on as well at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.